This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 539 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Mark Matzel de la Flor. Now, Mark is a former Navy SEAL turned farmer. So we discuss a host of topics from his deployments using plant medicine to overcome some of the mental health and TBI related issues that he found, local farming, using nutrition for health and so much more. Now, I do want to point out we did have a slightly weak internet connection on this conversation. So you will hear glitching a couple of times throughout the interview. Before we get to that conversation, though, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Mark Matzel de la Flor. Enjoy. So, Mark, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, James. Yeah. Now, I also want to shout out, so make sure I don't forget it, even though I'm sure we'll talk about him later, but Ryan Parrott was uh, who connected us. So at what point in your career did you guys meet? Uh, at Bud's. Yeah, we met at Bud's, uh, classing up. So uh, yeah, we've uh, we basically started our SEAL career together, you know, before we were SEALs. Brilliant. And was Will Chesney in your Bud's group as well? Yeah, Will Chesney was in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Will's been on the show. Ryan's been on the show. We're actually going to have him on again, kind of just giving us a slight glimpse of what he's planning next year, awesome. which is absolutely insane. But uh, people are yeah. still in the dark at the moment. Yeah, and I'll be part of that one too. I'm get, I'm heading out uh, tomorrow to go do a thing with Sons of the Flag out there on Thursday. Beautiful. So in a little event, yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, then the first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, oh, hi, California. It's uh, e- just east of Ventura, so it's a pretty cool little mountain town, you know, surrounded by just, you know, you might be able to, if I pop up here, it's kind of cloudy right now, so a rare cloudy day, foggy day, but uh, yeah, it's like in a bowl of mountains around it, so it's kind of cool. So I love to start chronologically, so tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was... Um, I was born in born in Beverly, Mass, but raised in New Hampshire. So I was in like Massachusetts for when I was a newborn and stuff, and then mostly New Hampshire. Um, no siblings, just me. And um, my father is a mechanical engineer, um, and my mom was an accountant, you know. Uh, and then she had some troubles with uh, bipolar disorders and stuff, so she kind of fluttered about and still to this day is dealing with some stuff so mostly my dad had raised me um and yeah i spent a lot of time just out in the woods 
in New Hampshire. And so talk to me about that. So you're an only child and my little boy was until I remarried. Um, so that seems to have really prepared you well for ultimately joining special operations. So kind of, you know, what was it that you found within the woods? Cause I, I even heard you touch about, um, you talk about nature was your church, you know, nature was, was that kind of perspective, which I agree with completely. I, I it's exactly how I see the world as well. Yeah. Um, I just found, uh, belonging, you know, in the forest, you know, it was, just, it was just my felt really peaceful when I was there, you know, just walking around. I was never afraid of being alone in the woods. I always enjoyed it. And I just cruise. I had a lot of like wilderness behind, you know, there's neighborhoods, but then there's like these huge plots of forest. And I just cruise through those forest plots and, you know, just loved hanging out in the woods, climbing trees and just creeping around looking at bugs, you know, just being there. So I just, just had an instant connection for as long as I can remember, you know. And you said about when, I think it was in your sniper course that you felt comfortable using terrain to navigate. So did you have anyone, any, any mentor figures that, that guided you when you were out in the wilderness or was it all self-exploration? Yeah, it was all just self-exploration. Um, you know, I, I would go out camping and stuff sometimes with my dad and stuff. But as far as like just being really comfortable in the woods, that was just me growing up that way and just not freaking out if I'm, you know, whatever lost. I can always figure out how to find where I'm at. And so that, that helped me definitely like during, uh, you know, land navigation stuff in the military and stalking and sniper school. I was always just like super serene and com- calm in those moments. Um that was like my ba- baseline, basically. So when I have uh, some of the closing questions, I ask people what they do to decompress. And a lot of times, nature is one of the things that, that people use. And usually, they kind of like re reintroduce themselves to nature after a career and whatever. With you having, you know, the, the, the slight disruption in family dynamic, your mother's struggle with bipolar, did you find a healing element as well and an and element of escapism using nature? Yeah, um, for sure. And it would be, I guess, from perspective, it would be escapism from one way. And also just like, I would call it just tapping back into just realness, like escaping the, uh, the escape, you know, because we kind of like, as a society escaped from our natural ways. And I think that's led to a lot of issues. So for me, yeah, I feel like that just set me up for success without really, you know, in reflection, seeing that. But just as a kid, I'm just like doing what felt right. And uh, just gave me a real, uh, an interesting type of confidence, you know, not confidence like socially with other people or something, but just as a human being, like I was always just confident in wherever I was at, you know, in the, in the, in the wilderness, so to speak. Like even if I was in the city or something, I still, it was just another different wilderness to me. So I even felt at home, like rolling through like uh, the city, you know, as a kid. Brilliant. Now, when you were, at that age, obviously, you're using nature, you're exploring. Were you an, an athlete? Were you actually playing sports? Or was it more, again, a natural kind of um, hiking, climbing type childhood that you had? Um, I did play sports, but it wasn't my passion. You know, I played like baseball and a little basketball and stuff. Um, but I really liked, you know, skateboarding, mountain biking, climbing up mountains, you know, snowboarding. Um things that were just more solo i guess and outdoors um i did play golf 
for like a year of varsity in high school real quick, but I just, just wasn't, um, wasn't as much my jam, you know? Now, what were you dreaming of becoming one day when you were still at school? Was it the military already or did you have something else in mind? No, I mean, when I was real young, probably the first thing I remember uh, wanting to to do was um, being a food chemist, which I don't even know how I, I just, I think I imagined that up, you know, I just liked <laughs> food and then I thought it was cool, like mixing chemicals together or think things just whatever you know i'd take like stuff under the kitchen sink and mix it all up <laughs> but um um also like you know i just thought it would be an interesting thing and so i was like my very first thing and then um and then the only other thing i would potentially have done definitely if i wasn't going to go in the military by that time you know by the time i was dis- deciding like what to do after school i would have probably went into um photonics because i took a there was a like a new course that came in for photonics in high school and i took that which is essentially the, the study of light in quantum physics um and so i was really super into that and uh yeah if i would have went the the school route that's really really where i would have went at that time now it seems very um I guess almost academic the way you were thinking because I, I heard you say about being interested in quantum physics as well. So was that stemming again out of your observation of nature or did you also have this academic side that was parallel to your observation of the real world? No, it was more yeah, observation of nature because I'd always look at like the smallest part of a hole you know like a tree it's I'd, like i was sitting up in a tree right there next to the bark and so i'd look at the littlest piece of the bark that i could or you know i i thought it was interesting looking through microscopes but it was more just like i was always trying to you know look at the base or you know looking up at the stars in the same way i'd be like oh that's you know it's interesting to me was up there so i was just curious naturally um and the academic stuff just kind of was a way to you know explore some of the some of that curiosity in so many ways but i really like the quantum realm and the light because no one really truly understood it i mean they were trying there it was very new and it still is i mean people's they they have theories and stuff but it's uh it's very um non-dualistic you know it's hard for the logical mind or logical models to 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 describe it and to define it so i like that yeah, no, absolutely. Now, we're going to talk about farming in a little bit. When you were, again, a young man, what was your diet like? Where was your food coming from? Again, were you exposed to a more holistic um, diet or were you actually in a typical American diet? Um, not typical American diet, but I would I would eat whatever was put in front of me, you know, for sure. Um, but mostly pretty healthy. My dad was decently healthy i mean we ate we ate pasta so i guess some people would say that's debatable but we're italian family so yeah we'd eat uh pastas meats vegetables my dad was you know well-balanced diet kind of guy um no no real junk food you know like every it wasn't like every once in a while he'd maybe eat some but it wasn't like a a thing that was common for us so i was just um brought up to eat good food naturally for me like i've always been a water drinker like i just nothing else quenched my thirst you know so i would always just pound water i'd drink ridiculous amounts of water i still do brilliant well walk me through your journey into 
um, well, let's say buds, for example, because everyone's recruitment story is a little different. I've had some horror stories on here. I've had, you know, I always refer to this. I think the most awesome recruitment story is Pat McNamara, who is a Delta operator, and his dad actually sent him with a lawyer. <laughs> so they made sure that he got exactly what he was hoping he would get. So kind of what was your journey like? Uh, my journey, I, when I started like, you know, bouncing around the idea of school or military, I was like, all right, I'm, you know, I had that, that one we, we chatted about the, uh, photonics or whatever, but I was really not into the continuing school just because I didn't enjoy sitting around in class for so long. Um, I'd rather be out doing things in nature. And so that's where like the military kind of came in. It's like, oh, well, I can at least not be in an office, you know, from my understanding, I could, I could be outside somewhat and doing things. And so, you know, I started, uh, looking at Marines. My uncle was a Marine. He actually just passed recently, David Matzel, um, from lymphoma last week. Um, so I got to chat with him again, um, before he left, but, uh, he was, a, you know, inspiration of just like a good military person. Um, and so that kind of, piqued my interest into Marines. I didn't really know much about military. You know, I just knew there's Marines and Army and Navy and the basic branches, but nothing about the jobs. And so then, uh, I can, uh, Boy Scouts, I think I heard some Army Ranger came by and some somewhere along the way, I gave a little talk and then I was knew about Army Rangers. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, that's interesting because it was more specialized and they had a more specific focus. And so I kind of, uh, saw that and I saw the 10th mountain division and, you know, just started learning that there are specialties. So then I started like researching what actually exists in the military. And I, you know, stumbled into like special forces and green berets and all that stuff. And, and, uh, seals really piqued my interest because it was supposed to be the hardest, toughest one. You, you're wet and cold and so many people quit and it's sneaky, you know, it's small units. Um, and so that's really what, basically piqued my interest that it was real small teams, real small units, um, very sneaky. And, um, that's what I decided to do. So then I researched that out just like I do with everything. I just research, you know, all the angles. And so found out there's this like seal challenge contract where you could go. And if you get that contract, as long as you pass the screenings, then you just continue on the pipeline and you get a spot at buds and so i just walked into the recruiters and told them you know hey here's what i'm going to do um so there was just i was just very confident and that's that's what i was going to do and nothing else and they tried to you know be like oh well no one really makes it and tried to probably fill some slots or however the recruiting role works but um now i was steadfast like that's the only thing i was going to do so they did try to get me to do uh because i scored decent on the asvab so they tried to get me to go to the nuclear engineer stuff which i was like no no thanks but <laughs> So you had a seeming an obvious desire to to really be at the pinnacle of you know the warrior, um, and I thought what was interesting when I heard you talking on your own podcast was your perception of basic boot camp because it actually kind of reminded me of of my pursuit in the fire service. The the basal stuff was was kind of in the way of, of the real fire ground you know training that we ended up doing. So so talk to me about that. You're you know you're you're an only child. You're wandering the woods. You graduate high school, you get into the Navy, and now you're having to shave your head and being screamed at and told to fold your clothes a certain way. Yeah. I mean, uh, so the boot camp, like I knew kind of to expect that kind of circus, but it was also just like I had so much self 
and just from being a loner, you know, and being in the woods. And I just was very accountable to myself and responsible. So to me, like a lot of the boot camp stuff, it was uh, learning minutia of like ranks and that stuff. But as far as like the discipline, I'm like, you know, I already had it. So, and I didn't need it from other people. So it felt to me, it just felt, um, real artificial and fake and, and gimmicky to me, even though I know like what it's designed for. I just really wasn't into it. And it just, those was the longest, the longest part of my life just because the days were so slow, you know, cause it was like, man, this is just very boring to me. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then just dealing with understanding that it's a game. Cause I just look at it as a game, like the drill and stuff instructors are yelling in your face and it's like, all right, I get it. You know, um, and, and so to me, I was like elsewhere in my head doing other things and thinking other things and just uh, feeling like it was a waste of time. And luckily, like we had uh, the ability to go do like extra extra training in boot camp for like the dive motivator if you had this SEAL challenge contract. So I was able to do that a few times and you'd basically just run and swim and, and get a little extra who um, you going on. Um, but I didn't get to do it as often as I like because I had a uh, boot camp duties as a yeoman to do the documenting and writing of things. Now, what about swimming? You grew up in the woods. Did you have the opportunity to swim a lot when you were younger? Um, not, I mean, just in like lakes and oceans, casually pools, you know. But mostly, mostly no. I didn't have a lot of swimming background. I was comfortable in the water, you know. I was, but I wasn't like a proficient at like a stroke or anything and in being uh uh efficient i think i did do like a little bit of like basic stroke stuff in like time in the boy scouts or something but yeah nothing nothing too crazy i just and i just didn't really think much of it because i thought like oh whatever it's water you just swim around and i didn't really think of it you know i just knew like i would be comfortable and and uh so i didn't put a lot of focus on there which you know in hindsight that's where i should have because that was one of my um weaknesses as far as being efficient you know i was like a truck in the water just like just not aerodynamic or hydrodynamic um with my movements so it took me i had to learn that um just grind through it basically in action now the attrition rate in buds obviously is very well known as you talked about um what was it about your life up to that point you think that gave you the mental and physical fortitude when so many others rang the bell um i was used to just grinding and pushing through you know and not needing someone else to like cheer me on or something like that like, i was my own motivator as my own motivation and so I decided I was going to do some stuff or, or die trying. And that's what I was going to do. So no matter how much it, like if something may suck or be uncomfortable, um, I just kind of not just dealt with it, but also like fed into it, you know, like use it as fuel, turn it into energy. You know, like if you're sitting in surf torture and you're getting really cold, you just focus on, focus on that, that coldness. And I feel in reflection, it was, um, the, the presence, like keeping your awareness present is what kept me from ever becoming hypothermic, you know, because they push you to the edge and some people will hype out and stuff. But I just noticed the difference, you know, or reflect back on that difference of like, why would someone else hype out and others wouldn't I feel that 
the difference is really like your focus. If you let your focus kind of slip away and drift off, that's when your your body functions kind of take over and put you into into a survival mode. Whereas if you stay focused and present, um, you can last a lot longer and go do things that you know people would say are impossible. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear because some people it was their you know physical upbringing, it was their wrestling background, it was their you know polo team, and then you know but there's that mental element as well, and, and there's so many different different backgrounds that set the you know the the frogman up for success when it came to buds. So it's fascinating to me hearing you know one's an only child, another one was from a big you know the youngest boy in a big family that got his ass kicked all the time, so that gave him mental toughness. So it's uh it's really you know interesting collecting all these different stories and getting these different angles of of you know mindset of mental toughness yeah yeah it's the the one common denominator i've found at least with all the all the all the good ones i would say it is uh we come from some kind of adversity you know some kind of whether it's like broken home or rough upbringing or being an outcast it's kind of like the the misfit toys kind of came out because we didn't really plug into society in in the same way you know we're not um we're more of just wild wild boys you know just like (laughs) we're true warriors because to me it wasn't like my my journey in there was much definitely a calling like i didn't uh I didn't have like a romanticized view of anything. It just like, it felt like the place, like the only place for me, you know? So that's what drew me in. Now, what year did you go in? I went in in 2002, right after high school. Okay. And and obviously a, a question of people, a lot of people get, what was the impact of 9-11 specifically on your road in the military? Yeah, um, I had already decided to do what I was going to do at that point, and so it didn't change anything as far as that's concerned. Um, I was definitely, you know, like down to go get some some uh, vengeance for it, but at the same time, I also wasn't as shocked as everyone else. I remember that because um, I don't know. I just felt like I just felt that not that that specifically would happen, but I felt that some thing would happen like some kind of catastrophe or disaster and it just to me it just felt like it was time for that something like that was going to happen and so i was obviously uh you know mad about who would do such thing but uh i wasn't surprised by it right now correct me if i'm wrong you didn't end up in the middle east in your first deployment is that right um, I did. Yeah, I did go to the Middle East on my first deployment. Okay, I was I was thinking of Guam. So so talk to me about that then. I'm I'm sorry. Yeah. So that first deployment, we did a split um, where we were Middle East, and then we went to the Asia Pacific. So first one was in uh, Baghdad uh, in 2004, and we were doing uh, like PS, PSD for Doctor Jafari, who was just like a, a Iraqi politician basically at the time, and which we were not excited about doing that mission, you know, the personal security detail essentially. Um, but we got roped into that because pretty much whatever we do, we're going to perform at the highest capacity. And so we got a good reputation for doing things. And then they ask you like, Hey, can you like, you do these things in our up the head shed, you know, just basically usually just says yes. Um, there's very few who, who, uh, 
stand up for what I would say what's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we did that and it was, um, a lot of driving around through the red zones and, um, posturing and just keeping that asset protected. Um, and that was, yeah, essentially the whole time. Like we got little rocket attacks a couple of times, little things, but nothing too crazy. And so I was pretty much when we ripped, I was pretty much burned out and they're like, well, you can stay here, you know, and you might get to go do assaults and stuff. And at that time I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go along with the, the rip to the Pacific because I don't want to get be stuck doing PSD anymore. And so that's when we moved to, uh, based out of Guam and bounced like Thailand and Korea and Singapore and, and stuff. Yeah. So how was your time in Guam? I actually got married in Guam. I was living in Japan for a while and married my first wife there. And, uh, a beautiful place, but I imagine that was an incredibly uh, uh, interesting um, base to be in to, you know, to go to all those countries that are around there. Yeah, it was it was um, interesting because I hadn't really traveled overseas. You know, um, Iraq was the first one, and and then so now I was in like essentially like a vacationy spot, and so um, it was, I'm glad we did that. There was the people we ripped with. They obviously went to Guam first and then went into Iraq. So I was grateful that we were in the Middle East first. And then this was our back end, like before we went home and we'd, you know, do training and stuff. But for the most part, it was pretty chill, you know. Um, so I enjoyed just kind of seeing other parts of the world um, and just, yeah, seeing what was going on. <laughs> so I, I liked it. I liked seeing the, the waters and swimming in the ocean out there it was warm it was tropical um and then getting rowdy man you know because i was still at this point i was still not even 21 so i during my whole time in the military like i i wasn't able to like go out to the bars i mean i did on certain workups in other states like tennessee and kentucky you know or i could i could uh use a different ID basically, or use my military ID and I actually scratched it off the four to a one so I could get in. But, um, I wasn't actually, when I was out there, I was able to just kind of hang out, you know, and do whatever. So I kind of cut my teeth overseas in that respect. Yeah. That was weird for me. I, I came to America just working on a summer camp when I was 20 and I'd, uh, you know, I'd been drinking since I was probably, you know, publicly since I was, I don't know, 16 or whatever it was. And so after, you know, four or five years, you go to America and they're like, oh, sorry, you can't drink. I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? But yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was it was so strange over here. And actually, my very first time, we befriended the people at the local bar and they never asked for ID again. So I actually got away with it. But uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange that we can send our young men and women to war. Um, you know, we can put them behind yeah. the wheels of a car, but we forbid them to have a drink till they're 21. And we wonder why keg stands and beer bongs are a thing in the u.s yeah it's yeah it's just like time to uh time to go all out because it's been deprived for so long it's yeah it's very interesting how um how the how the arbitrary rules are applied how you can you can run multi-million dollar equipment be responsible for many lives um put yourself in harm's way but you can't you know do a drink or or whatever you know work with any of the the uh the natural 
natural plant substances that I came to work with after either. So it's, uh, it's definitely interesting to, um, to look at. Yeah, we want to get to that when we reach that part because, I mean, that's something I'm very passionate about as well. Um, so you, I know you mentioned in your podcast as well about at some point in your career, there was a push by administration to break up a team because they were too tight. And that's something that I see a lot in the fire service. Ah, this crew is getting too strong. It's getting too tight. We're going to break them up. We're going to send them to a different station, which I think is the worst type of leadership you can possibly have. If, if a crew is cohesive, as long as they're not being completely destructive and they know their first due and they, they work well together, that's an asset for a department. But if you're threatened by it, that's the leadership's ego, not the, the crew's fault. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, and so that was like my, uh, you know, along the way, I just had a series of just realizing that there is different types of people within this SEAL team organization and that some people were like actual warriors and some people were not. Um, and so that's where I really started to just notice the difference. Like you would take a crew that was so tight and extremely proficient and skilled at war fighting, which is the function of the SEAL teams, and you would break them up because they didn't fit uh, uh, a kind of yes men choir boy type mode and so to me you know uh, I just that was like a, a big strike for me against the the organization that existed as it did because I, I had to I, kind of, I basically lost respect for all of the headshed that would do that to to people and not have people's back and not communicate as peers you know kind of take this this uh, holier than thou world perspective, especially from he- knowing some of the backgrounds of those people who are now in those positions who were similar in nature and then were punishing people for doing what they had done. And so to me, like hypocrisy is a big, a big um, thing that I don't enjoy and don't really put up with, don't respect it. Yeah, we'll even find this in in the hiring practices of of our um, profession. So the very, very first time I ever put a pre-app in for a department, there was an app and said, have you ever you know, done this, that? Have you ever tried this or that? And years ago, I had tried certain things and I put it on because I figured, well, honesty surely is the highest quality. And the the guy with such disdain basically screwed my application up and threw it away and said, yeah, you're disqualified. And I was like, oh, okay, so I get it. So I have to lie to be a firefighter. So you want people that run into burning buildings and see horrendous crashes and respond to mass shootings to have this facade of being an altar boy, not have any tattoos, you know, always shave. You know, I mean, just it, it was absolute lunacy, but yep. that's, that's how it is. The, the, the kind of administration um, version of a firefighter was so different than what a true firefighter looks like now they don't have to have tattoos you know but chances are they've done some things in their past that maybe not were within the 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 absolute lines of the law and that's what made them good to respond to these disasters when they're working yeah yeah and it's just it's just a denial of um humanness to me it's like because we, like you said like people have to essentially lie to get in and so you for sh- for sure have some 
some liars up there, some reluctantly, some just uh, willingly, you know, that's just how they are. And so someone who is a very skilled manipulator is going to fly right through that process. Whereas someone who is trying to be as honest as possible then gets shamed or denied for being as honest as possible. And that's a, that's a, it's a really messed up way of, of being. Like it says that there's no forgiveness for something if, if he, if it even really needs forgiveness, you know, but it's like, Oh, you're, if you perform, if you did something, then you're just always a piece of shit essentially. And that to me is, it's messed up um, on many levels. And I think that's why there's so many issues coming out of uh, service, especially the military, because people are not allowed to be, fully honest and when they do you know they get um attacked for it or just there's no care and there's no compassion in there and to me you know part of a warrior like the real warrior culture that does exist within you know where i come from we actually did care about each other um you know and it was looked different maybe to from out to outside it's like it's you know talking shit or you know, giving people a hard time sometimes, but we actually would do anything to protect each other. And to me, and we're not, we, we never would judge someone for, for doing something. Uh, you know, we have a talking with someone, you know, if they were getting out of hand or out of control and, and handle it with compassion, um, in, in, in a, in a very like masculine warrior, way, but it's still compassion. It's still care. Whereas, the this the administrative system would try to like write people off and abandon them and just throw them in the trash can and pretend like they're horrible people and to me i didn't that was something else i didn't like seeing and experiencing so that was another strike for me <laughs> <laughs> well another thing as well i don't know if you had the same experience you know you're in a profession when you're with a good department and you're with a good crew or a good team um you know it you're a team, regardless of, you know, race, color, creed, sexual orientation, whatever. If, if the, the man in your case or man and woman in my case to the left and right of me can do the job, that's the only prejudice there is. You either can or you can't. And then you come out into the quote unquote real world, you know, and oh, law enforcement is racist and, you know, all this kind of stuff versus these individuals that every profession has that are about apples that we have to self-regulate. But you're like, no, <laughs> that's not how people are. You know, yeah. I, I've been side by side with incredible people of all backgrounds and they're all fucking awesome. So, you know, you're kind of, you're projecting this, this, this thing that isn't the majority, it's the absolute minority. And I think when you come from the military, from fire, from police, you know, that we see it. And then especially the poor law enforcement at the moment, what they're, how they're being painted is completely different from how they actually are. Because I've been proud to serve alongside most, not all, but most of the men in, in, uh, in blue, men and women in blue. Um, but I've seen the, the rotten apples too. I mean, they're, they're obvious. You can see them because the rest of them are great human beings. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's a, it's a projection from the outside looking into any organization and you know what 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 we have through the military through fire through you know any similar type of a program is we all come in and have a, a sort of a rite of passage in which sets a baseline where we are all you know to use a tried out quote is equally worthless or something we all come in as mud you know through the frog teams like you're in the 
in the dirt, getting sandy in the water, regardless of where you come from. Doesn't matter if you're super wealthy or dirt poor, or you come from whatever background you come from. And so going through that kind of uh, that rite of passage as a as a as a community removes a lot of stuff. You know, it removes a lot of uh, biases and prejudices that can continue to exist. You know, if someone is only grows up in a very uh, uh, homogenous community and they're experiencing adversity in that community, it's very easy to look out at other groups of people and say like, well, they don't experience this that I'm experiencing. And sure, that's true. But it's there's also experience things that other people aren't experiencing you know everyone is experiencing their own version of suck essentially that's unique to them you know as an individual and as a community and so when you bring people together into a common place and have a rite of passage which i believe that all western society really lacks because there's no real rite of passage other than college i guess you could say school and there's you know i'm sorry but I went, to, I went to school and there's no comparison of like cramming for a test and writing papers versus like actually being pushed to your physical, mental, you know, emotional limits, wherever that is, and having to maintain your composure. And so that's where I say there is no actual rite of passage in Western society. And that's where I think a lot of things go wrong, you know, and, and, uh, Having, that's what I'm grateful for the military for having that common experience because it, it's like you said, it allowed us, I just see people as people. And to be honest, that's how I grew up. So, um, when I, cause I grew up fuck in the woods as a loner. So everyone was someone else to me, you know, I didn't have like a crew that I rolled with. I didn't see people in that, in that way. I just saw humans as humans. Um, and I didn't fit in with any of them. So, and then until I came in the military and then I did fit in, I found a place where I fit in and it was a whole bunch of different people. And so I think it's unfortunate that people take their biases and their traumas and blanket apply it to people who may have been the ones to commit those traumas and just like, hey, anyone that looks the same as this person is going to be like just immediately a horrible devil, you know, piece of shit character. And that's just it's really only hurting the people who hold those beliefs. You know, it's hurting society, but it's also really holding the people who hold those beliefs because they don't get a chance to actually know a human being unless some circumstance happens where they're forced to like actually sit and have conversations with them. Um, and so I feel it's just humans selling themselves short and, uh, choosing to see negatives without at least giving it a fair shake, you know, that's like, Hey, people could be positive. And so it's a, it's a, story as old as uh recorded history at least i guess you could say but i feel it's changing yeah no i hope so i think we just need a giant pushback from the normal people <laughs> and stop giving the assholes the microphones yeah yep i agree so getting back to your your path i know you found yourself in ramadi and, and i might be jumping the gun maybe it was prior but something i always um like to ask anyone who's deployed um because you know, most of us, myself included, I never served in the military specifically. We're given, if you, if you have, you know, cable television, we're given a very polarized view of war. There's the one side that's, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. There's the other side. There are a bunch of baby killers. Um, 
And what I want to do is, you know, each time is get the the perception from the men and women that were on the ground. Um, so it's a two part question. Regardless of the politics that sent you to, you know, wherever you found yourself, was there a moment where you witnessed, for example, maybe atrocities on the people in the country you were at or, you know, maybe a, an event um, against your own your own men that made you realize, regardless of politics, there are some horrible people here that we need to take care of? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot. Um, you know, there is there is many times when uh, enemy combatants would use children as shields. You know, whether that's like walking down the street and holding a child on their shoulder while they're carrying munitions to, you know, prevent a, a headshot or something like that, um, or you know bust in the door of a house and uh see like a an adult male like grab a child and roll over and hold the child in front of them as a as a as a shield essentially um and to like like we hit people who committed torture on on their own people too so it's like from uh from that perspective there was bad people in those areas and there's also good people you know it's not everyone everyone in the country is not uh, bad by any means but there were certainly bad people and those were the targets that we were you know assigned to hit so from that perspective i feel really um clean about the work that i did because i never i never took a shot on someone without understanding and knowing that they were a threat um and so i'm grateful for that i'm grateful that i that i that i was able to you know remain clean in that capacity um, but it's also, I understand that, you know, there's war and everyone wasn't, didn't make it, didn't make it through in that same way. And war is chaotic, you know, and when people, when survival's on the line, like things happen. And so, um, I just saw it from a human perspective, you know, as it was, uh, I w- at the time, you know, I was definitely there to, to handle the bad people and I was grateful to be in being in that capacity and doing what I was good at. Um, but at the same time, you know, I recognize that humans are humans, especially because there's, there's, there are children there, you know, no children deserves to grow up in a, in a war torn, um, country or in conflict or, you know, it's not, I don't feel that anyone, no one, even the most like cold, um, business type person in that scenario always had like from my perspective respect for children you know and compassion in that regard like whenever we'd see kids we'd give them candies and you know be nice to them um because that's just who we are (laughs) as as good people who care now with that so there's always a two two two-part question the other thing i love to ask because as you just touched on a minute ago it's very easy for people to think, oh, we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan, where the reality is we're at war with these extremist groups who are within these countries amongst all these men, women, and children that are just trying to live their lives. So what about moments of kindness and compassion that you saw amongst all this conflict? Yeah, I mean, I've been in, I've been on targets. We, you know, a, a target is not necessarily like something to be like, destroyed or something when i say target it it could be that or it could be just like somewhere where we go to hang out and carry out a mission of like surveillance or something and so a lot of these places being it's an urban setting are occupied by people and so we go in and we'd 
you know, clear the house and put the family in a room just so we, you know, know where they're at. And, you know, they, they go about their business and we just keep it secure. And so, you know, in, in some of those places, they, they'd offer us food and, and, uh, and, you know, basically being hospitable in their home that, you know, we're, is being occupied during a wartime scenario. And that was just, uh, you know, nice to see, <laughs> you know, nice to see that, um, human beings even in that scenario had uh weren't holding hatred even towards us you know they're like hey you're in my home so i'm going to respect you as a guest even um even though he like you know kicked down a door and and basically took it over for a little bit of time to uh use as security um so something like that or just like normal things like we'd go through farmland and people would have you know goats and and animals and um, they'd be living, living their normal life. Like there's some people who were just obviously just like doing their thing completely, regardless of what the government wanted to do. And so it's very easy to, to like get into a conflict type situation, whether that's a war or even what we we're talking about earlier with like identities, any kind of identity, you can be like, Hey, these, these people over here, this country, like all these people are just the enemy. And it was never framed in that way uh, for us because it was always fighting like terrorists. It's very easy for someone to develop a view of like, well, these people are just um, bad, especially from like an outside, not having interactions with, with those people. And that's why it's important for human beings to interact, you know, across uh, outside of bubbles and, stuff and to, to know humans because there are bad people in all walks of life and there are good people in all walks of life. And I feel that there are a lot more good people. It's just that the bad people in power use fear to dictate and control others. And many good people are not necessarily warriors, you know, so they're not, they don't even have the, the capacity or the drive to fight that. And so they just kind of go along with it and they become victims of whatever tyranny is going on in that, in that kind of uh, structure that's that's there and that's kind of what i see beautiful well thank you for that perspective because i think again it's so important for us to hear you know what what the men and women actually see and it's always a very similar you know um balance of, of the people that you're hunting and the people that you're protecting now i, I want to get to your transition out so we can get into you know your work post service but one more thing i know that your um your uh, unit was deployed right after Task Force. Uh, is it Task Unit Bruiser? Have I got that right? Or Task Force? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um. So Jocko and his team. So it sounded like that was one of the the pinnacles of your career. So what was it like going into an area that right before you know? Correct me if I'm wrong, but appeared to have great leadership and and great cohesion. Um, I was exciting because we, you know, from our perspective, it was like going to a show with a lot of activity, a lot of work to be done, which is, you know, it's like, um, anyone who's passionate about, uh, a job, even though, you know, I, I would prefer to have like a world in peace. Like if there is a war going on, like, you know, um, I was down to be the one to go do that work because it needs to be needed to be done, you know, um, if it's going on. And so, um, for us, like what I call like a real SEAL team guy, like a warrior, like that was exciting. You know, it was like, you know, felt like your, your, your calling is 
is up. You know, it's like going to the the NBA or something for a basketball player. Like you're going to war to do what your skills are trained up to do. And so I was grateful, especially from the previous deployment where I was doing PSD and just driving around protecting an asset that we didn't even really feel any wasn't close to our core of um what we came to do as seals so a lot of us didn't like that we're, we're jaded on it um and so it was good to just go and get some actual combat experience you know in that in that regard beautiful all right well then so let's get to the transition out what was it you know at what point did you realize that that you felt comfortable with the service that you'd you'd given and it was time to transition out and then with that what was that transition like for you personally because i know there's a lot of people that come on the show from from you know multiple uniform professions that found themselves identifying as that thing as a seal as a firefighter and that transition was a struggle for them and other people that already had stuff set up so that the transition was a lot easier yeah it was um it was rough, you know, cause I didn't really, I didn't really plan on doing anything else. Like once they made that commitment, I'm like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do for my adult life, you know, until I retire or whatever, I guess. And so by the time I decided to get out and I didn't even decide, like it took me a while cause I did like two extensions, you know, cause you can reenlist in the service for like a block of like four years or something. Um, but I just did like one year extensions on top of my service. Cause I was still deciding like, Oh, am I going to reenlist or am I not? Cause I didn't want to make the full commitment, but I wanted to just sit with it and not make a hasty decision to like get out or, or what you're either way, you know? So I used that, that time to reflect. And then just in my reflection, just on, uh, you know, some of the stuff we talked about and the administrative thing and the po- internal politics, nothing really to do with external politics, just internal um, and how people were treated. And I just made the decision, you know, I, I got a good experience in Ramadi. can kind of end on a high note with that as far as I got to do the work. Um, and then I just didn't want to subject myself to the control of people who I believe many of them were incompetent and um, not who I would want to be. I don't want to be led in general. Like, it's like, you know, I know what to do um, in situations and uh, the team needs to be like left to its devices. If you're going to use us properly, you know, you put us in an area and you say, Hey, here's what we need done. Get it done. Uh, and the fact that that wasn't happening, I saw it move into a more conventional style force, um, you know, bigger unit tactics and, and things of that nature. I was not, wasn't, wasn't my thing anymore. It's not what I came in there to do. Wasn't the true warrior stuff. It was getting more towards soldierism, you know? And so I just made the decision to get out after like my second, uh, extension, which is really tough, man. It was one of the hardest decisions I ever made because that literally there was nothing else I wanted to do. Um, but also this wasn't what, it, what I thought it was, you know, or, or it, it used to be, but it was turning into something else. And so I made the decision to get out. And with that, it's all, you know, everyone's like, Oh, what are you going to do? Like, wh-, you know, cause, cause everyone is kind of in that, in that capacity. Like there's nothing else to be done. Like being a team bad frogman is the ultimate. And so I was like, I don't know, I'm just going to figure it out. You know, I'm just going to, this, I, I get too much reasons to not stay here to stay. It would be against my 
my uh my better judgment and so i decided to leave and and it was tough man yeah because i didn't uh back to feeling like you don't belong anywhere you know just like wavering around in the world i did uh sold some cars you know i made sure i had a job lined up because i didn't want to just be like unemployed or something um because it felt irresponsible whereas i really if i would have done it more strategically i would have set myself up to uh go into school right away instead but i didn't i didn't really want to take any benefits or do the va thing or any of that stuff because it just felt like i didn't want to be a burden on society so i'm like i'm just gonna cut cut cord and uh do some start doing something new from the ground up so that's kind of where i went right after um the military well it sounds like um you're traveling once you're out versus traveling whilst you're in the teams um that had an impact on you so talk about the, tell me about that traveling in switzerland specifically yeah for sure yeah so when i was traveling uh through europe um it was it was nice because they're just like well we're just there to literally like travel around and do our schooling stuff um and it was mostly focused around the travel so i was just grateful to explore and to see see new things and experience different cultures and and uh see different people and just you know they're just more humans to me so i just see humans living in a different way with different customs and i really enjoyed you know seeing that stuff um and just confirming what i already knew in my heart you know that people are people regardless of where you're at or where you come from or what what nation someone born under what flag um and so it was just cool experiencing that with no strings attached no i wasn't there to like uh accomplish anything in that area just to be there and to observe and it's kind of just like i was in the forest you know i'd just be watching around observing and you know in the europe time i had friends that we were cruising around with so it was cool to have uh, that capacity and exploring new things together um it was just a good to me that's like what peak humanity is all about is engaging with other people having conversations you know being respectful of other of others cultures and ways of life and learning you know and uh showing up with some excitement some curiosity and some gratitude and humility you know it's not like uh you know there's always the the uh trope about the american that's going around as being crazy belligerent or whatever and there's definitely that I mean, within america there's that but i think there's there's uh there's just that's not how we were you know we were just there to hang out and to explore so it was cool it was a very good experience very nice brilliant so i know you talked talked about some people not be able to transition out well um i know you lost a friend in uh rob guzzo so so tell me about um you know who he was you know what what ultimately you know the, the road that that took him on and then how that impacted you to kind of change your road yeah so rob guzzo he was a good friend like a really like uh just bright bubbly personality always having a good time always cracking jokes being a little mischievous you know um but in a fun way and uh just like you know life of the party we call him a walking holiday he was always just always having a good time and so he came into our uh 
Ramadi platoon, work up as a new guy and was good. Just a solid dude. But he had, you know, um, personality conflicts with some of the people who were in leadership positions and really nothing operationally, just they didn't, the personalities didn't get along. So he just got, you know, shit on a little bit by them. And he, he's a very big hearted person. So he really took that, took that on and felt like, um, shameful of it. And you're like, man, why am I being treated like this type of thing? You know, when I, when I'm coming with an open heart and stuff. And so that was rough for him. Um, but he did his job well. We enjoyed being a SEAL. His father was a SEAL. Um, he was, you know, carrying that on. And he came, he had already been to college. And so he came after college because of 9-11. So he came in because of that, you know. And he came into his teams because his father was in the teams. Grew up with that. And so he was a really solid bro. And he eventually um, got left the the teams because he got in trouble you know just out in town partying too much type of stuff kind of what we had chatted about before where the administrative side just like punishes someone for like extra on top of whatever else was happening when even when things shouldn't have even been a big deal and so seeing that happen to him was also you know another reason that led me to leave um, and other people, you know, that happened too, but you know, that stuff weighed, weighed heavily on him. So, and after we were out, um, eventually we linked up and became roommates again or became roommates, you know, linked up again and we we're both going to SDSU, San Diego state university. Um, he was getting his master's cause he had already gone and I was just getting my, uh, bachelor's starting out. Um, and so we had a good time and just living the college life post military where we already, you know, we didn't come from high school. We came from like some experience of, of some hard life experience and we're just having a good time. Just grateful. Like, man, it's like having your, your freedom to like, Oh, this is what college is all about. This is cool. You know, not in the military. It was, it was like being a, a kid again in many respects, you know, exploring and, um, so we had a lot of good time, but you know, we drink a lot. That's the, the medication that is essentially socially acceptable is to drink. And so we drank quite heavily, um, and partying and stuff. And eventually, you know, that stuff kind of, kind of caught up with him with not just that, but also like some of the pharmaceutical medications that the VA hands out like Pez to people. And so that stuff just created a, a mental state that was not um good and it just kind of fed on traumas and just accelerated them and magnified them and at at one point it just got to become too much and he ended up taking his own life and that was when i was uh his roommate and so i was in the room and there's some other there's other people there his friends they were out partying and everyone had kind of fallen asleep i had gotten home late and just passed out because they were just on another level and then woke up to like one of the bros coming in and just being like, they come out. Like, I, I always woke up and I was like, what is going on? You know, thinking like it's some kind of just prank or whatever. And so I came out and he was just laying on the floor. He had shot himself in the head and, uh, you know, I didn't believe it for just, just on site. I thought he was fucking around cause he was a jokester. And then, um, Eventually, you know, I realized, you know, that it was 
real and then it's like goes into all right we gotta handle this situation mode where it's like make sure the cops are coming that medics and had to call his father and you know communicate the reality of what had happened and so that's um that's kind of where where that went and then for a long you know for a long time after that i kind of didn't obviously want to be in that apartment anymore so i was couch surfing with some of his families ended up going to boats you know a friend had a boat and i stayed on for a while and just kind of checked out from everything i was doing as far as like school i didn't really give a shit about you know getting my grades or performing my work or whatever so i kind of just checked out and just continued drinking with friends um grieving you know doing the whole process and wandering about basically being being lost again as human being with no direction or purpose um you know i didn't have a a focus i was just like I was just living, basically. So, w- talk to me about your road out of that. I've had I've had so many members of the SEAL community on here now that ended up finding incredible success, whether it was with DMT, ibogaine, or you know psilocybin. But that whole group of psychedelics seems to have really had an incredible impact on your community whether it's the pts side whether it's the tbi or you know most often the combination of the two so talk to me about your experience with plant medicine yeah and and so before i before i ever got to the plant medicine i was i was um just spending a lot of time outside working out running you know um going through sitting with the process obviously the drinking was going on and stuff but um and that really didn't stop until plant medicine i mean i i was never like uh, i was never one to just drink by myself but if i was out with friends and there was drinking to be done i would be drinking hardcore you know i would not be like i didn't i didn't half ass anything say that and so um you know by the time i got to my first introduction to plant medicines was some mushrooms. My my buddy Phil, who is another SEAL, he's like, hey, man, did you ever try any mushrooms before? And I said, no. You know, I hadn't. But at that time, I was like, I'm down. Let's go, you know. And to me, like, I was always I was always opposed to medication. Like, when I went to the VA and they tried to push pills on me, I was like, no, I'm not taking those things. Like, I'm not taking any pharmaceutical anything because even before um, – the experience with Rob and stuff, just, just as a, as a child with my mom and just, I never took medicine unless I absolutely would need it. And so I would just rather deal with whatever I was dealing with and be present. And so, but mushrooms, like I have, I didn't even have that aversion to because I knew there were natural things that came from the earth. And so I, I didn't even have that. I didn't even look at them as in the same light, um, which I know society has kind of demonized these things. Um, so I was just down. I'm like, yeah, let's go. And so we did like, um, a decent dose, um, probably like three and a half grams of mushrooms, a bunch of them, like a little handful. And we just hung out in my house, you know? And, uh, as, as it, I didn't know what to expect. And as it came on, it just like put me into this really familiar mode where I was like tapped into what I would say, like my humanness, like really 
deep into into my humanness beyond all this identity shit and and uh wandering through society i was just like very present and focused and so i'm like yo let's go eventually i'm like let's go we were listening to music and just hanging out and chatting and i'm like let's go walk around we had a golf course nearby and i just wanted to be out in nature so i just started cruising around um and we were walking on this golf course at night and it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life because I was just so tapped in. It was like being a kid in the forest where I'm like, you know, it felt like I was on this just big living organism, which we are of the earth. And so I was just really present with that and connected. And I could feel like the personality of the earth and the personality of the trees and the plants. And, and, uh, I was just, eating it up soaking it in my buddy started going to like uh some dark spirals of of patterns you know like dark you can get into all kinds of loops and in the space because your brain is just firing on so many cylinders it literally supercharges your brain so you're <laughs> you have like a higher mental function going on in many respects and your senses are enhanced and so i was just like yo let's keep walking check out this tree do this that and i was just completely amazed and like I just knew there was something there. I felt so familiar, even though I had never worked with that and never used that substance before. And so after that, I just started learning everything I could about mushrooms. And, and from that, that's what kind of led me to, um, you know, explore like how they live, how they grow their life cycle. I went and learned from Paul Stamets cause you know, you can grow all, there's all kinds of mushrooms. You can grow from like gourmet ones to lion's mane to, uh, oysters and all that stuff so I was interested generally in like what are these things that have this ability to like unlock a level of awareness and tap you in to a broader deeper way of experiencing this world you know a lot of people look at um what they would call drugs or something like that which I, I strongly disagree with with that classification I look at it as a food nutrition but um they look at things and say like things like oh it 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 puts you out of your mind or it, it numbs you out or it distracts you or you're seeing like things that aren't there it's like no that's just like an alcohol numbs you out and it can be used to escape but a mushroom you is not something to escape from anything it's something that you sit with it you go deeper into things you deal with things that people typically avoid and that's where the the healing power of them comes in because you're forced to to sit with yourself and your thoughts and your mind and some people don't like that and they call it a a bad experience when they when they're dealing with things that they don't want to deal with but i i've worked with these 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 substances for a long time i call them earth-based sacraments um because they're sacred, I believe, and um, they're tools that unlock, some people call it like, you know, 20 years of therapy in four hours or something, or with DMT, they'll say that's in like 20 minutes or something. And there's a an element of truth to that, but it's, it's really dependent on the intention you come into that that substance within that medicine you know you can if someone's using it for partying like it's just going to be a, a a a party favor you know and whatever people choose to do it's fine i don't think that that's harmful however it's not respecting it in the for for what it is um and using it to its 
to its highest potential. Um, and so I really look at it from the lens of it's a very powerful healing tool. Not that it will just like cure what ails you immediately. It, it, it's potential to have a lot of profound effects very rapidly. Um, but, you know, for, for many people, it can take a lot of work, like repeated times or integrate, integrating of what they learned during their experience and actually putting things into practice. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's also, like for me, there's the creation side where because your brain is so highly active and making connections that don't normally aren't normally occurring, you can get and in, drop into extremely creative, productive spaces and uh that's really what i mostly use that tool for and plant medicines like there's a healing aspect to it all but i i'm i'm much more in the realm of um creation with it beautiful well it's so important to hear you know and again like i said so many people who have been on here that have either served their community within the country or fought for their country outside the u.s are having so much success with plant medicine and something that I've talked about a lot and I'll give you a quick preface because some people that listen to this regularly have heard this story a million times but um, my family moved to Portugal so I got to sit down with the guy who spearheaded their um, decriminalization of addiction not not smuggling not selling but not making addicts prisoners but making addicts medical patients um, and they've had incredible success so over here as a firefighter paramedic, you know, I've seen firsthand the ripple effect of prohibition. You know, this, this incredible failure we call the war on drugs and the violence that it caused and the prostitution and the homelessness and, you know, the suicide and the overdoses and everything else that's affected with it. And putting all this power and money into the shit bags and we're wondering why people are pouring out of Mexico right now. Well, maybe we're the reason for that. You know, if you go back to the 1930s. Um, but, uh, you know, but then the other side of the coin is also we are, fucking our own people by demonizing the very things that are actually healing our soldiers, sailors, firefighters, cops, and everyone else who's had severe trauma, you know, in one, some way, shape or form, or TBIs in some way, shape or form. So we've, you know, we've, we've, there's so many negatives. There's basically zero positives of this prohibition. So, you know, through your lens, what are you hoping will happen, um, within this country where we can enable our veterans to actually have access to the very things that I've, you know, heard and seen is working so well in that community. Yeah. So what I, what I hope to see is, a uh, is, um, a respect come there and a differentiation between, uh, what you say, a harmful substance and something that is highly beneficial, you know? And so I always, poke at the the words the language used because language creates these boxes and so when when something's just classified as drugs it's like well number one anything can be classified as a drug right and uh, when i went through like some emt stuff they were calling oxygen a drug you know and whatever we could argue about this or that all day long but it, when you call something a drug it has a negative connotation to it and so when someone says of uh something like ayahuasca or a mushroom or a DMT, a plant, other, these plant medicines that come out, natural, natural based sacraments. Um, 
when someone labels it a negative term, the energy that someone's perceiving that is is negative. And so someone from an outside perspective that has no experience with it is going to develop an opinion based on what they're told. And that isn't helpful because, you know, it's kind of this weird um, dichotomy going around where very harmful substances in the form of pharmaceuticals when you get into opioids and uh, um, antipsychotic medication and things that are claimed to be helping people, but they send people into deeper, darker spirals and exhibit, you know, in Rob's case, suicide, which was on some of the, which was a side effect of some of the medicines that they gave him, which I'd call bad medicine. Um, You know, there's a, there's a, there's a massive distinction between something like that, which has net harmful effects and something like mushroom which has net benefit you know something that numbs you out like these pharmaceuticals do they just make people into essentially zombies who don't feel their feelings when you get into ayahuasca or mushrooms and then you're feeling your feelings at a magnified exponential space and part of the human process of healing is you got to feel the heal you know what i mean you got to like if you just avoid and bottle things up, like that's the many people understand that from going back into their their childhoods. People would tell you, you know, if you if you cage up your emotions, it's gonna lead to um, stress and trauma and all that stuff. And so we instinctively know that. And so something that unlocks and releases those tensions and traumas should be looked at with reverence and respect. Um, and that's what I hope to see come out because the reality is that these things are helping for sure like my peer group is combat veterans so there's a level of respect that a combat veteran has right um but then let's say they get uh hooked on pills or they're drinking and become just belligerent people just all of a sudden will write them off you know people in their life in their family just like oh he's just you know that person turned into such a piece of shit or something it's like no they're they're chasing they're chasing a healing that they're not getting from society or from any of these systems that exist and so when there's something that exists in the version of these natural sacraments these medicines that that heal and allow people to release and to become whole and more complete and to have more passion and become better family members and more productive you know people in society like that is not only a net benefit to the person but to society at large and i i will say that plant medicine is not necessarily for everyone it is for everyone like if you feel called to it it is and I'm not someone that's going to say it's it's harmful. It could potentially be harmful to someone who has like some pre-existing conditions, and that would be a consideration. But a healthy human being um, has the the right to commune with nature on their own terms, in their own consciousness, and there is no valid authority that can claim control over that over that over us you know over over us as, as free human beings and the natural world we were given and our relationship with creator god the universe however someone views that and so i feel like reframing essentially what's come out of that war on drugs in a different light and to like wipe the slate clean and just look at things and look at people like you said the people who are addicts who are on some of the more destructive substances to see that to give them respect to say like you know at at some point 
everyone's different, right? Maybe someone just went in all full party mode and they're there because they just decided to be partiers. But in more cases than not, people go into substances to escape, you know, some pain and trauma. And then you now have someone who's been a victim who's been trying to heal then the system isn't providing that for them. And so they turn to, you know, um, negative type of drugs or the system is providing them something in the form of opioids which are fucking legal and and it, and it puts them into a downward spiral and then that person in that in that lowest moment you know where they're they're feeling like all this pain is just getting kicked by all the people in society who are judging them and to me that's that's fucked up and that stuff needs to change and that's why i do like you know coming with compassion to a person and saying like you know at least offering healing in um communicating with that person as a as a real human being you know that's someone's mother father brother sister child someone you know it's someone at one point that person was a child you know and the path of life led them to where they're at so i feel that treating um people with addictions as criminals is not not only not good or responsible but it's not wise it's not compassionate and it's not where humans need to go, you know? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And just to give you an example, and this isn't even the plant medicine, but it's, I think, one of the good medicines that initiates a, a, excuse me, a natural response in the body, magnifies a response. The drug that I got shamed for in my first ever firefighter application was MDMA. And I had, you know, for years as a young man, had watched in my local, local nightclub in, you know, the town I grew up in, Every night, people getting broken glasses shoved in their face and, you know, people like lying, bleeding after a night of drinking. Um, and then when I actually was in Japan was when I did it and I did mushrooms then as well. Um, it was nothing but a bunch of people dancing and hugging each other. It was amazing. So much better than, than, um, the alcohol. And this was, you know, purely being used as a recreation drug at the time. But now fast forward, that same, you know, product that was demonized so harshly that I never saw any violence with or any deaths or any illness or anything with, um, that's being used very well now for psychotherapy. So you have, you know, whoever who has some of that trauma just locked hard inside and they give them, you know, under medical direction, they give them MDMA and then they start psychotherapy and those walls that that brain is trying so hard to hang on to they fall down because they don't have a choice because you get all that kind of, you know, that, that feel good element. And so they're able to access those deep, dark parts of their mind that may have, you know, been completely inaccessible prior to that. So, you know, the plant medicine, I'm seeing a huge part. Some of the, uh, you know, the uh, synthetic meds are also having effects and they were, they were used prior until all this stuff kind of happened where they started scheduling all these, these, um, you know, um, either plant medicine or other meds that are actually working. So, um, you know, that's what I'm seeing and, and hearing from so many people from the psychology space, from the actual, you know, patient space. Um, and we have to take away, you know, this, this totally outdated, epic failure that is our prohibition, you know, take care of our addicts like mental health patients, which they are. And then use some of these compounds to to help heal. I mean, use the medicinal properties that were so powerful that have been used all over the world for centuries, if not millennia, and stop ignoring, you know, the the wisdom of our our predecessors. Yeah, and and 
that's something I'd like to see too is a is a respect and reverence shown to the native indigenous cultures that have been using these you know especially the, the natural medicines for literally thousands of years and so when when it comes to like you know this this stigma that's been applied it's really been a punctuation because before that punctuation happened before it was demonized and made illegal and and associated with whatever it's been associated with it had been used for thousands of years before anyone even before western culture even knew that it existed and so there's been communities that have used these substances for very long periods of time and have ways of ceremonially using them and that's where you know i work with um some natives down south in uh church of the people for creator mother earth who use mushrooms responsibly in a ceremonial setting and it's it's nice to see the the science side come out of things you know because science is like using that confirmation to say like well hey we can we can take a group a whole bunch of group of people and we can put that into numbers and and show this benefit on a spreadsheet but it's like beyond that there's a human connection you can actually go and sit down and have a real conversation with a human being and understand beyond all those numbers how it benefits someone and in that same capacity you can interact with the cultures that have existed for a long time and understand that they have an intelligence and a wisdom that science doesn't have and science really cannot have because it's coming from a frame of a highly logical perspective which has its merit but it's not all that there is you know when i look at consciousness i kind of map it out as you got the the mental the physical the emotional and spiritual and so if someone's very heady you know and, and very analytical and pragmatic it's a it's it's a lens of looking at the world but if there's no emotional connection there there's something missing and that's where you, you mentioned mdma where it just is a heart opener and you can really like for me that's one thing it wasn't that it was a different type of uh actually plant like a what uh con different plant that's um that is a heart opener in a similar fashion and so that just kind of dropped my awareness from my mind in my head very like cold and calculated type of awareness into a open connected free-flowing heart-centered consciousness and to me like that was an, another awakening and it's like wow man and i you know i at some point when I was a kid, I had, I had that shit too. And over time as an adult, like you get hardened up, you, you deal with certain things and you build up armor around that. And so having the ability to, um, tap into those things is, is, is important and not completely understood, especially when you get into the realm of spirituality, because when you really get down to it, regardless of people's beliefs or not like science doesn't acknowledge that spirituality or that spirit the soul is a thing they don't really understand consciousness in that regard and so there are under there are very old understandings of consciousness you know and uh i feel that science would be a lot more um i don't want to say useful but a lot more um true if it would admit that it's not the expert in all the all the areas and and defer to some of these older um ways of being 
Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Now you, you talked about ancient wisdom and it's, it's a good segue for, for agriculture. So one of the things that's just been so maddening, um, for example, during this COVID epidemic where, you know, obesity and, and ill health of many, many countries was basically pushed to the side. It was almost heresy if you discussed any of that. Um, you know, the, this industrialized farming, this processed food that we found ourselves surrounded by in, in, you know, this millennia, um, is so detached from the millennia prior where, you know, our ancestors could go into, you know, the, the, the area that they lived in, the area they grew up in and found, you know, p- things to pick from trees and eat raw things, maybe as, as we progressed that, that we cooked. Um, and, you know, the small farm element, the, uh, the, the lack of any chemicals being thrown on the farms, um, created, in my opinion, very, very healthy people up until very recently. Uh, yes, you can look at certain lifespans and diseases and, you know, filthy, you know, toilet practices that contributed to some of the shorter lifespans of certain generations. But overall, if we farmed and ate the way we did a hundred plus years ago, I think we would revolutionize this this country's health. So talk to me about, you know, how you found yourself embedded in in the agriculture space and then and then talk to me about the inception of Guardian Grange. Yeah, so from the the mushrooms that led me to study that and from that I, you know, there's a Paul Simmons video where he chatted about bees and the relationships of um, bees' immune systems being basically shot and their lifespans in jeopardy. You know, there's varroa mites and there's um, colony collapse disorder and all these things that have labels to them. But essentially, it boils down to the bees are not so healthy as they used to be and they're dying sooner. And so one of the things that he had an epiphany on, which was actually also through some experiences with mushrooms. He, uh, you know, and years of work and experience. And he, he eventually came to the realization that, you know, the bees weren't making their, their hives and logs anymore. Cause and, and he's like, because the, the logs weren't falling down where he was up at in Washington. And so part of that reason is all the bears were killed off and the bears were killed off because the lumber was used to fund the education, um, department the education department up there and so they killed off the bears and then the bears weren't doing their bear stuff in the woods and part of the bear stuff is scratching trees and you know when you when a bear scratches a tree there's open wounds in that tree essentially and those open wounds were where mycelium would go into the part of the mushroom that colonizes things and eventually those trees would rot and fall over and there'd be hollow logs and the bees would make their their uh, their their hives in there and long story short he realized that you know the the mushrooms there was water moisture in there that the bees were drinking off of and that was conferring an immune benefit to those bees and so he started supplementing uh bees with mushroom supplements and bumped their lifespans up again and so from that i just you know i started studying the bees and and looking into, you know, I was, did beekeeping for a little bit and just got more connected and just was paying attention to, like, I was always more conscious and aware of eating natural foods, you know, not so processed, not so processed foods. And just looking at what it takes to produce those things um, <clears throat> or gather them, you know, in a responsibly managed, like, forest, for instance, you could. Uh, gather certain meat if your society is balanced you could gather game meat 
And so I just started looking at the whole picture again and getting tapped into basically my original passion in the, the woods as a kid is being someone who's observed these things for a long time. And it just set me up for uh, creating my own epiphany where it's like, well, I want to, I looked at the industrialized food system and I look at, I call it just fragile, a fragile system. When you take something and you remove its localization and you make a highly centralized industrialized process, not only is it you're dealing with um, pesticides that are being pumped into it because you're trying to kill everything else and just only have that one thing grow, which is completely unnatural. It doesn't exist in anything in the world, in nature. And so you're, you're creating this unnatural food growing environment, poisoning everything. And beyond that, it has many like economic impacts, you know, or it's, it's like harming the small local farmers. And, and I just thought it was this whole big system where in a robust, healthy society, especially if you want to get into even something like national security, like you need food sovereignty of your communities. If you're food systems can be broken down, whether through natural disaster or something more nefarious, then the people who are dependent on these grocery stores being full full up from you know they live in a city or rural area where there's no there's no farming going on then they're going to be not in a good place and we used to have much more localized food systems so that got taken away and i believe that it needs to go back into in order to have a not only healthy humans but healthy functioning society we need to have localized food systems and i i go a step i call it decentralized right which essentially is the same thing like if if you if your towns are running their own food systems and and little small mom and pop businesses doing their own things family enterprises um, then you have diversity built in there you have decentralization because you're not reliant on a big like uh meat packing plant or big producer of produce to have their finances straight and to 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 you know play that game which is introducing all these artificialities to it so what i saw is that issue and then combine it with the veterans issue of you know veterans are essentially left to their own devices in society and valued and kind of shit on to be honest in a lot of respects you know called um outcasts or threats even there's been people who have veterans threats to society which i find completely fucking ridiculous considering the fact that we're the ones who stood up to defend it um but anyways um you see that like these two things that are broken as far as structures the veteran structure and the 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 environment and the food systems and me having my experience and many people having their experience of that nature just being out and active and it heals i combine them with a uh, a community model where it's like hey let's come together and build these new food systems and help restore some uh, parts of the environment and maybe even gather data for scientific institutions where we can leverage our military skills of like surveillance and reconnaissance to go into into areas where maybe like science teams can't for for either lack of funding or it's too risky or something like that and so bringing people together around this community aspect 
to heal nature and to use that as a facilitation of like integrating and healing human beings, not just veterans, everyone's, everyone's welcome to participate as we're growing stuff. And that's part of a community. It's, it's not just veterans. It's just, that's my catalyst that I'm using in, 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 uh, bringing veterans to kind of like spearhead a lot of operations and, um, and then inviting the community along, like, Hey, you know, like we're doing something in your area. If you want to show up, let's show up and like, let's just not chat about any of the bullshit going on. Like they'll just chat about doing some good work. And I don't even bring up any of that stuff because I feel like the media does its, its job of just um, spinning up fear and division 24 seven. And I feel like it's, it's old and it's tired. And when people come together, just kind of like how we did in the military, like we came and had a baseline of um, some kind of struggle, right. Where it was like, boot camp and buds and you go through a period of suck but the same community can be built around a positive rite of passage where it's like hey we're coming together to build something where it's constructive and creative and so that's really the 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 model of of this guardian range you know yeah, well, I think it's it's fantastic. It reminds me of um, Team Force Blue. I uh, had um, Roger Sparks on. No, Rudy Reyes is another member, and it's a bunch of you know veterans. I think a lot of Special Force guys, um, and I'm sure women as well, that go down the keys and they help restore reefs. So they use their aquatic skills and they dive and they go and do something good. And I, I can see how. Not only, as you said, that community element where you're banded together again, but also that purpose of doing something good in the world as you did as a, you know, soldier, sailor, firefighter, cop. Um, those two elements together, not only are you actually doing good things in the world, but the healing element for the individual is extremely powerful too. Yeah. And I think there's, especially for combat vets, I think there's a, um, I'm big on balance. You know, I feel like balance is a way of like, I look at all traumas, disease, damage uh, as, as a result of imbalance in some system within or with, you know, within the self or within nature. And so having um, the ability to balance, you know, a combat role with a life creating role where it's, you know, growing plants or caring for animals or just being in life and working to help create life and to help nurture life is a very naturally therapeutic way to like reintroduce balance into the consciousness of uh, human beings who had to, you know, focus on uh, death aspect or even in, in, in fire, you know, I have a, in paramedics, like they're around um, death a lot. And, you know, to, that can weigh heavily on someone. We weigh heavily, weighs heavily on the soul of, of a human being to be around death, um, especially with, um, you know, the Western, lens of looking at death and kind of not not dealing with it in, except for these punctuations of time and so it's a very like you know when someone's around it a lot and doesn't have a a, a really deep fundamental philosophical kind of their own understanding of it it's it's a lot and so to to balance it out with just life creation or being around living things and and nurturing and healing in that way is uh very powerful i believe absolutely and then you have that nature element as well whether it's the the ocean whether it's you know the the 
the countryside that the farm is in, now you're taking these people that maybe they were, you know, originally from a city and you're getting them outside as well. So they're working with their hands, they're out in sunlight, which are other additional healing factors. Yeah. And it just naturally creates good habits too, because when you have a passion, you know, when someone's in a depressed state, it's like they're going to do anything to either get out of it or just numb or um, get something. So this is where like some of these processed foods come in where it's like, man, you know, how good is a donut? Like regardless of how bad it is for you, it's pretty delicious, you know, like a nice donut is pretty good or some ice cream or some of the candy. So people can get hooked on these processed foods that are really unnaturally delicious when you get down to it. Like there's combinations of, of things that do not exist in nature. And so it's very easy for people to take not only caloric loads, but when you get into like how these mass produced crops are, are created, there's all these pesticides that they don't go away. Like they're in those grains and they're, they're getting put into our systems in these small increments. And over time that builds up, whether that's heavy metals and pesticides or, you know, whatever, um, it, it has a toll and, and that's the unfortunate, uh, limitations of science, you know, is if, if people aren't looking somewhere and the study's not funded, um, they're not going to find the cause and maybe studies are funded and scrapped and, you know, to, to um, promote um, the profit of uh, certain businesses, you know, certain massive enterprises that exist because their bottom line as a business is to generate profit, not health. And so for me, I look at there's these conflicts of interest that also exist within this um, profit-focused system, you know, where it's like profit above all else. Like they don't care, you know, what's destroyed in the environment or where health goes for humanity. There's always something else to avoid just living a more healthy, balanced lifestyle. And for me, I am just, like I said, I've always been like against using medicine unless I absolutely had to specifically like the traditional pharmaceutical type of medicines, because I understand that, you know, there's a cost to everything. Like no, there's no free lunch. And so I think people should be more, um, aware and purposeful and tent on if they're going to use a medicine and being aware of all the risks and doing everything possible to not have to use those medicines or to wean off of them if you do have to use them. Um, but for me, myself, I like to be as natural as possible with everything that I do, you know, um, and that's where I'm kind of pushing the communities that are being set up to just not even have to have those discussions, but by nature of living in a more balanced way and eating whole natural foods and exercising and having, you know, good spirits, good connection, because the emotional, the emotional health of someone affects your physical health too. If someone's living in a high stress environment constantly and always depressed like that, that, that weighs on their body too. And so it's a very holistic approach you know, that, um, uh, that I'm taking and just looking at all the moving parts, but just wrapping it all up into a practical application where it's like, Hey, we don't really have to debate on theories. It's just like, let's, let's get together and do some things that we know are good for ourselves and start making better choices and creating new habits that are good and, um, living life to the fullest, you know, and being good, being good to each other and, uh, and sharing that and spreading that out. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on, on one, one more question. Then I'll go to some closing questions. Um, one of the things that I hear, and I know it's, it's a knee jerk. It's, it's an uneducated knee jerk. There's no malice behind it, but sadly, I think it's something that people have been groomed to believe, but people have this philosophy that it's expensive to eat well. And of course, if you go to Whole Foods or somewhere, then it's expensive to f- get those foods, but you're going to, a middleman, someone who's, you know, got food shipped in thousands of miles from all the different places, wrapped it all in plastic and then, you know, put it in some inner city somewhere. What are you seeing as far as the, the expense or inexpense of local farms when the local community comes to the farm and purchases directly from the farmer? Yeah. So if you, it, this can, this gets into an interesting space because it's dealing with currency and the currency is, um, is a manipulated item but when you uh are cutting out middlemen for sure like your cost is going to go down when you're dealing directly with local with local farms you know your cost is going to go down and and um you know let's just 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 ignoring the whole currency situation and economics for a while um when something doesn't have to travel by planes trains and automobiles it's like all those things are expenses, right? And so that bumps up the cost. And so what we have is like these centralized industrialized food systems shipping stuff around. So they're getting, they're, they're benefiting from economy of scale and, and subsidies in the case of grain, soy, corn, and all that stuff. Um, they're benefiting from subsidies to drive their costs down in economies of scale while poisoning the earth and humans and then shipping this stuff all over the place which is bumping the cost back up and then you have these like massive supply chains that exist to move all this stuff around where you could cut all that shit out and just grow eat locally you know maybe you're not going to get the um papayas if you don't live in an area with papayas or it'll be a more of a rare item but when we focus on local produce and food it's going to create a balance within that within the systems not only within our own with our own our life but the the cost will come down now what i was talking about with the the currency that's where it gets a little tricky because when you have um the ability for non-productive members of society to create a whole shitload of currency like in the trillions of dollars and infuse that into the system that has an impact and that drives prices up and when we start playing around with interest rates and things of that nature it it has an impact so when we're exchanging with this medium that is a currency which is a bro another broken system um it's having a detrimental impact because there's extractors you know like the paper the paper trading businesses and and things that i i call extractive of wealth because human wealth wealth is a an idea but it's a representation of human effort at the end of the day because you know the land can be very wealthy um it's producing let's say fruit or something but it takes human beings to go and get that fruit so if you're doing it in a in this type of economy that we have right now where you need workers to go out and do that. And then you need to move those things around and everyone has to get paid with this currency stuff. And it's, it's not that big of a deal. It's not, it's, it can actually be decently efficient as long as that 
vehicle, the currency isn't being heavily manipulated, which it is by the banks and and in governments. And so that creates a very unique set of problems that shouldn't exist. And I know like for the small family farms and they're struggling, you know, whether it's like people coming from, let's say a tech sector and like driving the prices of uh, agriculture land up and like all the prices raised with that. But if they're raising not for utility value, but for leisure value, and we're actually just like cutting off our nose to spider face type thing. Like the, the, the food production affects us all. And so this thing that people don't really want to look at, which is currency has a direct impact on and just one of the reasons why I set this up as a nonprofit, obviously it has a nonprofit mission, but you know, even if I had just wanted to get into farming, like that's a massive and, and not do any of this other stuff, there would be a massive undertaking and financial, you know, responsibility and you're always playing catch up and you're dealing with inflation and in loss of crops and you know let's say the government just locks your locks your stuff down and you can't even produce and make ends meet and then you lose your whole business like has happened like so i've I've built this up strategically to literally create a new structure of society like a new fabric of society and i call it a decentralized infrastructure for a soil-based economy and where it is just localized agriculture and you know people can <laughs> like it could it could come to a point where it's like hey you know what if you help um help out on the farm like instead of getting paid in like dollars or whatever maybe you're getting paid in meals and lodging and housing and it's it's um you know that's where i see down the line that's where I see like we used to have barter, you know, and barter became essentially illegal because it couldn't be taxed. It couldn't be extracted. And so these are issues that are economic, but they affect very realistically our health and other communities, you know, because you, you look at the indigenous population, the natives of this land, like they lived for many, many, many thousands and thousands of years without this system existing. And they lived well and their and the environment was balanced they were instead of instead of having cattle there was a lot, bunch of free roaming bison you know that were harvested and that's you know that's another um direction where i'd like to move you know it, and it's going to take time it's not like something that can happen overnight but um i prefer to use bison on properties and i'd really prefer to have completely free roaming bison where you don't even harvest them in this in the same way where you harvest them in a more hunted manner because there's a you know i hunt and um when you participate in that activity it's it becomes a sacred act in itself it becomes a form of medicine and um i just think there's a lot of ways of of doing things and i know it gets pretty broad and i can go into a lot of areas that's why i feel like i'm gonna have to just literally just write a book on it um to put it out into imagination land in a way that's like, hey, this is also practical, but you know, people are so resistant to um, new ideas a lot of times that they'll dismiss, they'll be highly dismissive. And so, I'm I'm not interested in, um, like I said, engaging in debates. I'm just interested in putting things into practice and doing things in more balanced ways. And I understand like the power of uh, when you look at science fiction and what it did for personal computers and these little devices that we talk on. Um, all that came from 
sparking the curiosity and imagination of human beings. And we see it a lot with, um, you know, space travel, space exploration still. And to me, like, I think what's cooler than being on a planet and this universe that has life on it for sure. And how can we optimize and maximize that and use technology in a balanced way to really create synergies within these natural systems. And that's really what I'm, what I'm pushing for long-term, you know? Yeah. Well, I love it. And there's so many areas that, you know, that you've touched on. I agree with completely. You know I mean? You know, we, it's a miracle that, that we were born on this planet. And when I hear people talking, it was Elon Musk talking about, well, one day we're going to need to go to Mars. Like, well, or not. <laughs> if we stop fucking up the planet, maybe yeah. we can just stay here and not worry about that anymore. And if you want to go to Mars, knock, yeah. knock yourself out. You know, send all the assholes to Mars and we'll all stay here. <laughs> one Mars is an interesting one, right? Because it's, it's literally, I just call it a cold desert planet. It's a, it's a dead planet. There's no life to speak of. And so just from a... To me, it's like it's cool. People are creative and whatever have their passions and exploration. But to me, it's a very ego. It's a very egocentric way of saying like, hey, you know what? Um, just writing off the Earth and saying that yeah, it's just doomed. And so we're gonna go to a dead planet and we're gonna take a bunch of resources and try to like, start it over better than what nature did. And you're talking about like, like if you really get down to that, that's a real heavy ego to say that you're going to bypass billions of years of natural evolutionary process and systems that have been created naturally that you're just going to hack past all that stuff and do it better. Um, to me, again, like whatever someone's passion is, but I don't feel like that's the right direction for, um, humanity to, uh, pursue i feel like that's a little bit of an icarus con complex where you fly too high to the sun and your wings melt and you fall back down to earth where we're supposed to be yeah. so that's how I, I i like to i like to poke fun at it too because a lot of people idolize that um that way of exploring the universe absolutely well mark i want to switch some some closing questions so i can let you go we've been talking for almost two hours now and it's been amazing um the first question i love to ask is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. Um, man, there's so many good books. And it's funny because I didn't start really reading books until later in life. Like I would just observe things and, you know, read snippets, read articles. Read, I'd read, but not whole books. But later in life, I started reading a lot of books. And one of the, one of the first ones I got to that's really um, helped me um, analytically put into concept the natural systems and building things and kind of what what guardian grange is i'm um, setting up to be anti-fragile and that's the name of a book by nasim taleb who's a economist but he goes into this concept of like what is the opposite of fragility you know and some fragile is easily broken um and people would usually go to like this robust where it's you know something can like withstand you know a log is robust you can hit it with an axe and it's going to take a while for you to break it down but this concept of anti-fragility is like stress actually makes it stronger you know and so when you look at like an actual tree it is anti-fragile because when the wind is pushing it around as it's young that wind is making that tree really strong and it's it's growing under the stress in the same way as humans do you know when we work out and we exercise we get stronger through stress and so our biology is anti-fragile and w what i see in this uh kind of artificial systems is there's a lot of fragility built into it you know it, it's easily cracked 
and can crumble. And that has really led that book anti-fragile has really, it, it allowed me to help. It helped me laser focus my thoughts. And I mean, I read that years and years and years ago, but it's still to this day, like I just draw back on that, on that one concept of building things that when stress is applied can actually become stronger. And so that's where it's very important to have community, you know, to have a network of communities where people are mutually respectful and compassionate and grateful um, for the life that they're living. Because, you know, then let's say your neighbor community suffers a flood or something, then the other communities can come and help them out. Just like if we had a, a neighbor in a in our own community who was struggling, we could pull resources together and help them out or a little bit outside of what we talked about. I mean, you could, it doesn't go too deep into the currency thing, but the currency is another fragile system that I mentioned. And that, that anti-fragile book I think is, uh, highly beneficial. The guys get a little bit of a, of an ego in there, but, um, if you just soak in that information, it's, uh, it's really good. It's a really well done book. Brilliant. Yeah. Very pertinent now. I mean, we've been through a test and we've seen the fragility of some of our systems. Um, what about a, yeah. a documentary and or a, a movie that you love? Oh, man. Um, so after I had envisioned this um, this concept of guarding grains, you know, the universe kind of starts throwing stuff at you and things start moving. And I came across this documentary called The Biggest Little Farm which is about regenerative agriculture and putting balance into, you know, agriculture systems. And uh, I think that's a really good one. It's a good, especially for like families and stuff. It's a really cool one to watch. Um, it's Ap- Apricot Lane Farms is, uh, they're actually near where I'm at right now. But that's um, a really d- well done documentary. It's cool. It's got a uh, just positive, really positive energy. And I think um, cool different perspective shift on um, food production. Beautiful. Have you uh, um, read any of Joel Salatin's work? Yeah, uh, haven't read any of his books yet, but I've heard him speak and listened to him on some podcasts. So I'm familiar with his his uh, way of doing things, and I like yeah, I like I like his uh, I like his energy too. Yeah, it's really good. No, he's brilliant. I've had him on a couple of times. He's he's amazing. Another another person. It's so simple. You know, he doesn't pretend he's cracked some amazing code that no one else has. He's just taken it back to how we used to do it, which was you know allowing the animals to naturally fertilize the soil and then you know just rotate through i mean it's it's so simple when you look at it yeah it really is it's it's, it's again like pulling the ego out of it and just observing nature and then saying like hey you know what I, we don't we shouldn't be competing with this force it's like we're not going to compete with a tsunami or a tornado like the force of nature is powerful um, but what we can do is work with that power and create, I like to use that word synergy, you know, even though it's kind of an overused word, but it's true. Like if we are doing our thing in alignment with nature, like life can be more beautiful than, than most people can imagine, you know? Um, and that's what I'm really excited for, for humanity, because I believe that we do, um, we do go there. So that's what I'm working to push for. Beautiful. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, let me think here. So many good people. Um, and I know you obviously talked to Ryan, who's a who's a solid bro. Um, a guy, yeah, have you heard of uh, 
Clark and Pastado. I have actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's a he's a cool guy, man. He's a he's another team guy, but he's just he's got a positive outlook. And he likes you know, he's he's real, but he's he's uh he's got a good spirit, you know. He's got a good positive energy about him. So I think he would be nice to have us speak. Brilliant. Thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how they can find Guardian Grange and reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? Um, man, to decompress, I I, uh, I reflect. I mean, I, I guess you'd call it meditation, but I was I never really called it meditation. But I, I sit and reflect. I walk around in nature, um, just kind of unplug from technology. I actually don't watch the news at all. I haven't watched the news since like 2007 um, because that's a big part of my not compressing so much. So I don't have as much to decompress. Um, but, you know, just everything is makes you move so fast. So things just kind of build up really quickly on us now. And just a good time to decompress. Um, I do ceremonies down with uh, uh, the natives on the Morongo reservation um the Hoya reservation with the church of the people for creator mother earth um we have good community of um people that comes to that and we do sweats and uh things of that nature um but really man just being in nature you know i gotta start going back to the ocean too which i think is uh just floating around because i just being in that in that body of water if you have an ocean near near you it's uh it's a lot of uh cleansing energy you know uh, especially when you're not trying to do stuff but i kind of stayed away from the ocean for a while just because it, it felt like work to me you know but i think i'm ready to go back into it um with a new perspective beautiful yeah the ocean's definitely one of my my happy places uh, i normally just body surf like a five-year-old for hours on end. <laughs> they wonder why this old dude is doing that but uh yeah i mean it's there's no question. Even even uh, some one of my previous guests, I think it was Don and um, Prime, who um, have deep end fitness. They were talking about even the the healing element of being underwater and, and being surrounded by water. Just that pressure yeah. itself is very therapeutic too. Yeah, Prime's cool. I know him. He's uh, he's a, he's an awesome guy. I I, I know I do. Uh, I wish I had a thir- a big old deep pool around because I do miss that. It, it, there is a, a serenity just being underwater you know and just just sitting um but maybe i'll just have to do that in the ocean yeah absolutely just don't scare the lifeguards <laughs> um all right yeah. well, well then the very last question so if people want to learn more about guardian grange if they want to you know donate if they want to reach out to you personally where are the best places online yeah so uh guardiangrange.org is uh the website which i'm still like every you know we're we're small young early so i'm kind of just wearing a lot of hats and I'm, I'm doing the web creation too so i'm still like developing that site and i'm not like an expert let's say but i I'm, i can navigate it so it's been a little slower than i'd like to get that complete but it's got a good a good piece there and you can find us on social media there which is also just if you search guardian grange it will show up and we have a podcast it's got a couple episodes out right now just under guardian grange as well um and so yeah we're on mostly active on social media on instagram um we have accounts elsewhere and i want to start doing more things on youtube so um i don't have a i don't know if people can find it easily 
on YouTube unless you go to my website because when you start up a new channel, they just have a jumble of letters and numbers. So if people want to head to the website and hit that YouTube and subscribe there, if I get up to like 100 subscribers, then it allows me to like put my Guardian Grange as the name. So I'm kind of doing that. But I want to be pumping out content, video content on there. Um, and just really pushing more content out, engaging with people because that's part of, you know, building 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 a community and uh, also just putting out some positive energy into the, the cyber waves. Cause I feel like there's just so much negative stuff going on. I, I think it's um, balance is desperately needed for the sanity of society. Absolutely. Well, Mark, I just want to say thank you. I mean, I, I love these long form organic conversations and, you know, there's members of your community are doing all kinds of things, whether it's Jocko and, you know, some of his, his brothers in the leadership space, whether it's, you know, people doing strength and conditioning like, um, Jeff, uh, excuse me, Jeff Nichols. But, you know, this very holistic path that you found yourself is, is, also you know so powerful and to come from from such a kind of high level background um as a warrior to you know as a healer now i think is incredible so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today yeah thank you james i appreciate the conversation it was uh it was really awesome good chat um thank you very much 